God's eternal blessing rests on those who humbly acknowledge their spiritual need and pursue true righteousness. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. We're moving today in our series here, looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, going into an examination of his Sermon on the Mount. And the central theme of the Sermon on the Mount is righteousness, true righteousness. But before we look at that, I thought it would be good for us to reflect on just a moment. What do we mean when we say that word righteous or righteousness? What does it mean? Well, if you look at righteousness, what word or what do you see right there, that first syllable? What word do you see there? Right. That's right. So righteousness means that which is right, morally right, good, holiness. But it is not only an absence of sin or corruption, it is the presence of virtue. So righteousness means moral rightness, moral goodness, moral virtue. And it is God's perfection, it is God's perfection in every thought, every attitude, every word, every deed. So if that is righteousness, God's perfection in every thought, every attitude, every word, every deed. How many righteous people do we have here today? Any? Any of us? Not too many, right? None of us, right? None of us are that. So what are we doing here, right? Why are we looking at this? If none of us are righteous like that, well, see, that's one of the points of the Sermon on the Mount, is to show us that none of us are righteous like that, and that's why we need a Savior. And it's through Him, as we later eventually discover in God's Word, that it is through Him that we are given that very righteousness, that perfection, as a gift in Christ. That's grace, isn't it? And that is very good news. So God's perfection in every thought, attitude, word, and deed. And it is something, it is a quality within that is then expressed outwardly in our words, in our deeds, in our relationships with others. That is righteousness. We see it in virtues such as love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are all manifestations of righteousness. But as Jesus was delivering this sermon on righteousness, he knew that the people that he was preaching to on this, that they had a different understanding of righteousness. Their understanding of righteousness was the righteousness of the Pharisees, the righteousness according to the Pharisees. So if you were a Pharisee, what did righteousness mean then? Well, it was an outward thing. It was an outward legalistic conformity to the law, but neglecting, neglecting the heart and the spirit of the law. There was no inner purity of heart. It was pride 
and self-sufficiency. It was self-righteousness. So rather than being the righteousness of God, perfection in everything, it was an outward thing that one did what? To look good to others. It was motivated by pride. It was self-sufficient. It was self-righteous. They thought they were capable of this righteousness, and they were capable of that kind of righteousness, weren't they? And that was righteousness. And it was also then hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another. They also added to God's law, they added many things that God had never said, all of these man-made rules and regulations. And so Jesus warned the people. He said to them, beware the righteousness of the Pharisees. You don't want that kind of righteousness. In fact, he even says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You want to be righteous? You want to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's got to be better than their righteousness, because if it's their righteousness, you will by no means, no way, no how, will you enter the kingdom. Now, we don't realize what a radical statement that may have, must have sounded to the people in Jesus' day. Because to them, they want to, what is righteousness? What would they think of? What would they point to as being, well, that's, boy, now that's righteousness. They would point to the Pharisees, right? After all, they were their spiritual leaders, their teachers. Boy, no one was more righteous than the Pharisees. And now Jesus says, unless yours exceeds theirs, by no means will you enter the kingdom of heaven. What must that have sounded like to their ears? Brutal, exactly. What are we going to do? Well, maybe it means we need a Savior, right? And that's exactly the point. So what is righteousness then according to Jesus? Well, Jesus says righteousness is both inner and outer. It comes from within that is then expressed outwardly. It is an inner conformity of the heart to the law of God, which then results in an outward conformity to the law of God. The law of God, not the laws of man, rules and regulations, but the law of God. An inner conformity of the heart to the law of God, which then results in an outward conformity to the law of God. And that's something that I'm not capable of. And neither are you. Not one of us is capable of that. It's something that has to be given to it to us. And it comes only when we first humbly admit that, admit our insufficiency, admit our lack of perfection. It is a gift, then, that is received by faith. So with that, then, we're continuing our series here in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So a reminder that uh, we are using a resource here uh, by John MacArthur called One Perfect Life, which is a harmony of the Gospels. He takes all four Gospel accounts, and he combines them, harmonizes them, puts them together into one flowing account in chronological order. So I think that's a, a great read if you want to pick up a copy of that then. But that is what we're using to guide our series through this examination of the life of Christ. 
So today then, as we're moving into this, we're seeing here we are in the second year of Jesus' earthly ministry, coming to the Sermon on the Mount with the theme of true righteousness. That is the central theme of the Sermon on the Mount, true righteousness and what Jesus teaches us about that. So here today we're looking at true righteousness and divine blessing coming from Matthew 5, 1 through 16, and Luke 6, 19 through 26. And here is the key theme that I want us to take away, that God's eternal blessing rests on those who humbly acknowledge their spiritual need and pursue true righteousness. True righteousness begins by humbly acknowledging our poverty of spirit, our moral bankruptcy, and our need to receive righteousness as a gift, humbly acknowledging our spiritual need, and then pursuing true righteousness, not in our own strength, but by the power of God, and that God's blessing, his eternal blessing, rests on those who humbly acknowledge that. So a little context for our text here today. As I said, this is the first of six messages exploring Jesus' Sermon on the Mount with this central theme of true righteousness. Now, it's true righteousness as opposed to what? The false righteousness of the Pharisees, Pharisaic righteousness. It's in contrast to that. And we see Jesus repeatedly setting that up there, the difference, the contrast between You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And don't be like the Pharisees, but rather what? Do this. Be like this. Because the Pharisees, again, it was that outward, legalistic, done for the approval of people, whereas true righteousness is inner, conforming to the law of God from the heart. And we are incapable of that ourselves because God requires... Absolute perfection. Remember we said before, you want God to require absolute perfection. You want that. We're not capable of it, but you want him to require that. Why? Because if he doesn't, what kind of, what kind of world do we have? A bad one. A world like this one, right? Would you want to live forever in a world like this one? No. No. And we're not going to live forever in a world like this one. It's not heaven and the new earth then, is it? God requires absolute perfection. But we're incapable of that. Well, that's why we need a Savior. And so the sermon points us that. So this sermon shows us what true righteousness is and that this is how God wants us to live as followers of Christ. And that we're not capable of this by ourselves. That's why we need a Savior. So we have then Matthew's account and Luke's account. There's some debate about this among scholars. Are these two versions of the same sermon given at the same time? Or is it two different sermons given on two different occasions? Well, I think more likely it's the same sermon given on the same occasion there, but with Matthew and Luke choosing to emphasize various elements or parts of it. Neither Matthew nor Luke tell us everything that Jesus said, 
They tell us many of the same things, but not everything. But we get some differences in there, and we put them together into this harmonized account then here for what I believe was one sermon then. So more likely, I think it's one sermon with varying details according to Matthew and Luke's different audiences and purposes then. So with that then, let's look, starting in Matthew 5 and also Luke 6, what Jesus says here. Then seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you who hunger now, and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Blessed are you when men hate you and persecute you, and when they exclude you and revile you and cast your name as evil and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for the Son, for the son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and be exceedingly glad and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner... Their fathers persecuted the prophets who were before you. So first we see here in this sermon promises of blessing. He begins here with what we have come to know as the Beatitudes. A Latin word, beatus, meaning what? Blessed. Blessed are those. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What did Jesus mean when he said, blessed are you? Well, one translation of that is happy. Happy are you. And that's a good translation because it does mean that. But I would suggest to you there's a lot more to it than just simple happiness. See, happiness can be kind of a fleeting thing, can it? Kind of determined depending on circumstances. Maybe happy one moment and not so happy the next. But that's not what Jesus is saying when he says happy are, are these folks in that sense. He's talking about a deeper kind of happiness. He's talking about an ultimate kind of happiness. It is an ultimate well-being in spite of or regardless or whatever the circumstances may be. Scripture speaks of that as, as joy, right? So we might say Jesus says what? Ultimately well-off in spite of whatever circumstances may be are. But again, that gets a little unwieldy, doesn't it? Not quite as bad as the uh, semi-sesquicentennial 75th anniversary Diamond Jubilee uh, celebration, right? But nevertheless, a little bit unwieldy. So he says, blessed, 
ultimately well-off, ultimate well-being, ultimate happiness, having the blessing of God, the approval of God upon you. So ultimate well-being with the approval and favor of God upon you are these people. Who are they? Well, the very first one, he says, are the poor in spirit. It all starts, true righteousness, true blessing, starts right here with poverty of spirit. That is, acknowledging our spiritual need. Admitting to God that we are morally bankrupt and incapable of true righteousness. That's where it starts. We will never be truly righteous until we acknowledge that we're not and that we can never be apart from God's grace. So the poor in spirit are those who who see their need, admit their need, admit that they're not perfect, they're not righteous, and they never can be and will be. Now again, remember, Jesus is contrasting here and throughout the sermon the righteousness of the Pharisees with true righteousness. And you could almost hear, as you see, these blessed are, each one of them is like the opposite of the Pharisees, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. What are the Pharisees? They think they're rich. They think they're rich in spirit. Oh, I'm good. I've got this, right? I'm good. Right. But Jesus says, no, blessed are the poor. They're not so impressed with their own righteousness. They don't think they've got it all together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Well, we've talked about that before, that that, that can have different meanings depending on the context of it. But generally, a kingdom is a domain or a realm over which a king rules, right? And so the kingdom of heaven is the domain over which, who is the king? God is. Jesus Christ is the king, right? And so the kingdom of heaven over, is that realm over which he rules. So in one sense, the kingdom of heaven is everything and everywhere. There is not a thing that he does not rule over, right? But that's not the sense here, though. The sense here is that realm over which he rules that is in conformity with and reflective of his perfect will. All that which is truly good. This is the kingdom of heaven. It's God's rulership over all. And it's that then which is in conformity with his will. So the kingdom of heaven, in one sense, is an internal thing in our hearts and our minds. But it is also an external thing that will one day be what? In the new heaven and the new earth, it will be physical and this earth as well. Well, not this earth, the new earth, right? But right now, we align ourselves with the kingdom of heaven in our hearts. One day, we will be citizens, and we're citizens of that. One day, the kingdom of heaven is coming down to earth, isn't it? 
physically. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, one way I like to think of it is this, is we might paraphrase that or, and think of it this way. Blessed are those, or ultimately well-off and happy, are those who admit they have nothing, for they shall receive everything. Admit you have nothing, and you will receive everything. And that is at the heart of true righteousness and the gospel good news message right there, isn't it? Admitting that we have nothing, no righteousness of our own to present to God starts there. And those who admit that, humbly acknowledging their poverty of spirit, they'll receive everything, the kingdom of heaven. We're also told, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. You know, sometimes we've seen this, I've seen this on sympathy cards before, you know, where someone has passed away and you want to send a card then uh, to, a, to a family member. It said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, I agree that God comforts those who are mourning or grieving a loss, Right? But is that what Jesus is talking about there? No. That's actually that's misusing that verse. So what was Jesus talking about when he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He was saying, Blessed are those who, again, poverty of spirit, recognizing your need. Blessed are those who mourn over this realization and this admission of your sinfulness. Blessed are those who are grieving over their sinfulness, for they shall be comforted. How are they comforted? By God's forgiveness, mercy, and grace. That's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, who are grieving over their sinfulness. For they will be comforted, comforted by the good news of God's mercy, forgiveness, and grace. His grace is what? His good gifts to undeserving people like me and you. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. People think the meek are the weak. That's not it. The meek, who are the meek in the Bible? Well, I'll give you a hint. Gentle, right? Who is a great example of meekness in the Bible? Jesus himself. Was Jesus weak? Hardly, right? So who are the meek? The meek are those who have their strength or their power under control. And they exhibit gentleness toward others. Now, not always. Was Jesus always gentle with every person? No. gentle with those to whom gentleness is needed, but sometimes not so gentle with those with whom gentleness is not in order or appropriate, right? Right. So meek is strength under control. And he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So again, contrasting with the Pharisees, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Who were the Pharisees? They thought they were rich in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Were they grieving humbly over their sin? No. Blessed are the meek. Were they humble and gentle with people? No, they were dictatorial, the Pharisees, right? So he says what? Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. What does it mean to inherit the earth? I think Jesus is speaking literal truth there. The whole earth. Not this earth, but what? The new one to come, the new earth. Blessed are you who hunger now for thirst and who hunger now and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be filled. Did the Pharisees hunger and thirst for true righteousness? No. But blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Isn't that a great picture of, of, of desiring? I want to be like God. I want to be like Christ. I want to be like him. I want to be perfect in thought, in attitude, in word, in deed. Now, spoiler alert, you're never going to be that on this earth in these bodies, right? But will you be perfect in thought, in word, in deed? Absolutely, you will. But blessed then now are those who hunger and thirst for that. Have been ever been really hungry or really thirsty? What does it do? It just kind of consumes your thinking. Your every thought is, is, is man, I've got to get something to eat or I've got to get something to drink, right? It's all consuming. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are just consumed by this desire for true righteousness. For they will be filled. If you're hungering for physical food and you eat, it fills you. Well, if you hunger for righteousness, what? It fills you that God promises when we hunger and thirst for that righteousness, he's going to produce that righteousness in us. How many of you can testify that when you diligently seek God, when you're hungering for thirst and righteousness, he responds to that and he fills us with that, doesn't he? Right? That's right. Blessed are the merciful, for they, should, they shall obtain mercy. Were the Pharisees merciful? Hardly. Merciful, mercy and grace are closely related, but they're not exactly the same thing. Mercy is to withhold something from someone that they deserve, to withhold punishment from someone that they deserve. Grace is what? Is giving good to someone that they don't deserve. So the merciful, God is merciful and gracious. He's merciful in that he withholds punishment that we're due. And he's gracious then in giving us good that we don't deserve. And so then he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Is there someone in your life that could use a little mercy? That maybe they deserve, <laughs> maybe they deserve some punishment? but you are merciful to them. For they shall obtain mercy. Those who exhibit a merciful attitude to others receive mercy from God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, the pure in heart. Righteousness isn't just outward activity for the benefit of others to see. 
like the Pharisees. Righteousness is inner. It's a purity in heart. Now, to be pure in heart, none of us are ever going to be that in these bodies right here on this earth, are we? But we can be pure in heart in what? In that we are seeking that and growing in that. And one day we will be absolutely pure in heart in his presence and in the resurrected body, won't we? But until then, what? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And again, I think that is a literal thing. Just like Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth, the pure in heart shall see God. We will actually see him with our physical eyes. No, wait a minute, God's a spirit. You can't, how do you see a spirit? Well, I think we'll see a man, the manifestation of God's glory with our eyes in heaven and on the new earth. And yes, physically seeing a physical resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, right? So physical too. And seeing the physical, resurrected, glorious Lord Jesus Christ, but also seeing the manifestation of the glory of the Father and the Spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The peacemakers, not the peace lovers or the peace wishers, right? There's a difference between loving peace or wishing for peace and making peace. What's the difference? Making peace is hard. It's work, isn't it? It's one thing to want peace. It's another thing to do the hard work of making peace. Was it easy for God, the righteous and holy God, to make peace with sinful human beings? Was that an easy thing for him to do? No, it cost him everything, didn't it? In the giving of his son... So blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. To be a son of God means to be like something. So God made peace with us. And so we then are called to make peace with others. And when we make peace with when we do the hard work of making peace with others, then we're being sons of we're being like God. That's what God does. That's what God did. And so we're being like him in that. Now, how many of you know that all of those things, those are virtuous, those are wonderful things, but there are some people in this world that are not going to like that, and they're not going to like you, and they're going to oppose you for doing those things, right? And that's why he says then, blessed are those who are persecuted for what? Righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men hate you and persecute you, and when they exclude you and revile you and cast your name as evil and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day. It's counterintuitive, right? When you're being persecuted and people hate you and revile you and exclude you, want nothing to do with you, and they say evil falsely against you, I know that would never happen in our country, right? We're moving more and more that direction every day, aren't we? So when that happens, but it's what? It's for righteousness' sake, for the Son of Man's sake. 
I've told you this before, I'm going to say it again, and if you want to take me out back somewhere and have a word with me afterward, I understand here, okay? But the blessing here is for those who are being persecuted for righteousness' sake, not because they're being jerks. Do Christians sometimes act like jerks? Who's been guilty of that, right? That's not the blessing for acting like a jerk and being unkind and sensitive and all those kinds of things, right? It means what? When we are speaking and living out God's truth in love, nevertheless, some people aren't going to like it, though. That's the blessing. Persecuted for righteousness' sake and for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day. Why? Leap for joy. That's a power. Why? Because you're going to be rewarded for it. God sees. God knows. God will not forget. When you're hated, when you're persecuted, when you're excluded, when people say evil things about you, rejoice because God sees and remembers and will reward you for that. That's why we can rejoice in that. I don't want persecution. Do any of us really want persecution? But if it comes, persecution for righteousness' sake, rejoice. Rejoice in that because God will reward you. In fact, your reward is what? Great in heaven. For in like manner, their fathers persecuted the prophets who were before you. God sent prophets to his people Israel and how did oftentimes, how were those prophets met? They were persecuted, they were hated, they were reviled. Well, guess what? They're going to do the same to you. Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, they're going to do the same to you. So rejoice in that. Goes on to say some warnings here then. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Let's make something clear here. Jesus is not calling out rich people, full people, people who laugh, or people whom people speak well of. What do you mean? He just says it right there. No. Who are the rich? Are these the materially rich folks and that? He's saying what? The ones who think they're rich. There's richness of spirit, right? So here we see some warnings of judgment. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. He's not talking about money. He's talking about self-sufficiency and pride and thinking that they are rich in spirit. For you have received your consolation. In other words, what? Oh, people think highly of you. You have the... Approval of man here, the Pharisees, right? That's all you're getting. You're not going to get God's approval. In fact, we're going to see Jesus say exactly that thing coming up soon. For you, you, you have your reward. That's your reward, the approval of man. Woe to you who are full. Not for those who just had a good meal. What? For those who, who think, oh, I'm righteous, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need any more righteousness. I'm full. For you shall hunger. You're going to realize how hungry you actually were, how empty your stomach, your spiritual stomach really was. 
Woe to you who laugh now. See, there's the proof right there that God does not want his people to laugh and we should all be miserable people with frowns on our faces all the time, right? No, who are the ones who are laughing now? These are the ones who instead of mourning or grieving over their sin, what are they doing? They're laughing about it. They don't take it seriously. I'm good. I'm all right. It says what? For you shall mourn and weep when you see the truth of your condition. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to whom? The false prophets. When all men speak well of you. Now, is there something to be said that, in fact, even Scripture talks about it, there about qualifications for leadership in the church, uh, that you're looking for someone who has a, a good reputation with outsiders. Well, here Jesus says, whoa, don't, you don't want someone where everyone speaks well of you. Again, he's not saying someone who has a good reputation for the right reasons. He's saying what? When all men speak well of you, he's talking about all are speaking well of you because you're not telling them the truth. You're telling them what they want to hear instead of the truth of what God says. The false prophets. What did the false prophets say? They told the people what they wanted to hear. They tickled their itching ears rather than telling the truth. So all were, oh, I just love this prophet. This prophet over here that's telling us we're sinners and we need to repent. We don't like that guy, right? That's who he's talking about here. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. When you speak God's truth, not everyone is going to speak well of you. If you don't believe that, just keep being faithful to God's word in this country for the next few years. Actually, it's already here. But just continue to that and see if everybody speaks well of you. They won't. Finally then, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So we've seen promises of blessing, warnings of judgment, and then also the call then for you and me that we are to be agents of salt and light. Agents of salt and light. You are the salt of the earth been quite a bit of discussion about that. What is that salt? Was salt as a, as a preservative, as a flavor enhancer, as a representation of purity? All of these things are true. But I think what Jesus has primarily in mind here is that salt as a preserving agent that helps prevent further, like they didn't have the refrigeration systems we have back then, right? And so if you wanted to preserve meat, what would you do? You would put Salt on it, that would, help preserve, that would help keep it from going rotten. And so Jesus is saying, you, my fathers, who are truly the truly righteous ones, living in true righteousness, you are like salt that helps keep the world from getting even more rotten than it is. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Now, true salt doesn't lose its flavor, but they weren't, like, pure salt doesn't lose its flavor, but 
they weren't using pure salt. They were using salt that was derived from the Dead Sea. Now, I happen to know a little bit about the Dead Sea and how, just how salty it really is. But they would make salt from that. And eventually, because of other minerals and impurities in that, it could lose, its, lose that seasoning, if you will. And then it, didn't, it wasn't good anymore. And what do you do? You just throw it on onto a path where people walked because it still had sufficient power to kill vegetation. So that's what he's saying. You know, when the, this salt loses its flavor, you pour it on, it's trampled underfoot by men. They would put it on paths that would kill vegetation to keep the pathways clear, the footpaths. And so then, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, then what? It's good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So this impure salt for the Dead Sea, nevertheless extremely salty. How salty? Put it this way. If you took a glass and put it in the Dead Sea and take it and drank it, you would be going to the hospital immediately. It's that salty. So they warn you very, very clear when you go to the Dead Sea, do not drink the water there. Warn you against it. How many of you think I had to figure out how salty it was, though, nevertheless? (laughs) Who thinks I was dumb enough to taste it? Of course I did. Come on, man. You get warned like that? I got to know just how salty it is. Now, I wasn't so stupid to take a cup and fill up and drink it down. I wouldn't want to go to the hospital. But I could see from just a little bit, like, yep, I can see why people go to the hospital for this. I just put my finger in it and then touched my finger to the tip of my tongue, and it's like, whoa. Here's what happened. First off is, is it's, it's like something, it's like the saltiest thing you've ever had immediately then, right? And you're like, oh, okay, I see that. But then it starts to burn. And it's like, oh, man. And I'm like, uh-oh. And it's like, and I had to go get a glass of water or something because it was bur- just this little butt, bit from tip on the tip of my tongue. It was burning my tongue. So, yeah, now you really want to try it out, right? <laughs> Do not drink it. Put it, put it on the edge of your tongue if you have to. But you're going to find out, I guarantee you, right? So Jesus said, well, that kind of salt, yeah, that eventually can lose its effectiveness, and then it's good for nothing. But he says, but you're the salt. How might believers lose their flavor? Sin, discouragement, disunity in the church, all kinds of ways, right? Hypocrisy. He says, but you are the light of the world. So, and by the way, I think it, it, there's also an element here, though, too, of, of salt as a flavor enhancer. You know, when we are living in true righteousness, I think it, it enhances life for people around us, too. It makes life better, doesn't it? And Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Imagine a city lit up on a hill. Can you hide that light? No, you can't. Now, if you have a light, if it's dark, you go into your house and you turn the, your lamp on, do you then get like a big box and put that over, over the lamp? No, why? Because you want the light to shine in the darkness, right? Well, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When we're living in true righteousness, when we're doing the things that are honoring and pleasing to God, it's light that shines in the darkness of the world, and God is glorified or honored through it. Well, so what? What do you want me to do? Well, I'll remind us that God's eternal blessing rests on those who humbly acknowledge their spiritual need and pursue true righteousness. So I'll ask you then, are you 
trusting in your righteousness or God's righteousness? Have you humbly acknowledged your spiritual poverty before him? Admitted your need? Or do you think, no, I'm good. I'll be all right. I'm a good guy. Are you seeking happiness, blessedness, as God defines it? Or as the world defines it? True happiness, true blessedness is found in how God defines it. Not as the world. The world's happiness is what? It's temporary. It's fleeting. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And finally then, salt and light. Are you flavorful and bright for God's glory? Are you flavorful and bright for God's glory? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the righteousness that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, as your word has clearly told us, uh, we don't have anything to offer of ourselves of true righteousness. It's only when we, would admit, when we admit our poverty of spirit, our unrighteousness then, that we receive it as a gift. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who admit they have nothing, for they shall receive everything. We thank you, Lord, for that. I pray then, Lord, that we would shine truly as lights in this world, that we would be salt, that we would not lose our flavor, Lord, through disobedience, but that we would walk faithfully with you, that we would be agents of change in our world, salt and light. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.